You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your um, lawfully guardian host, Abraham. (laughs) And I'm going to be your trying to understand what Abraham just said, host Shane. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that was. That definitely wasn't very good English. Yeah, it happens, uh, that, which is great <laughs> leading into an episode where it's going to require a lot of very precise language True. <laughs> to understand. <laughs> yeah, I jumped into this one with both feet without thinking about what I was going to do, <laughs> and here we are. But we made it. We are a psychology podcast. We like to talk about all kinds of things psychology-related, and today we are talking about a topic that is related to how we deal with the psychology of people who are dependents potentially. Mm-hmm. And we believe that maybe they need our help taking care of them. That's sort of what we're doing. Yeah. So this episode's going to cover a little bit of uh, how sometimes we assume that we know what's best for people and maybe overstep our boundaries. Now, you'll notice that we have these silky smooth, beautiful voices and that we have this wonderful, charming cadence to the timbre of our throat holes from That's which true. we make sounds. Yeah. If you'd like to see the curly, misshapen faces that accompany these silky smooth voices, you can join us on Patreon, where you get access to videos of us recording these episodes, which, to be fair, like the videos aren't just us recording. There's like a lot of banter that happens both before and immediately after episodes. Sometimes we forget that the camera is recording and we do silly, embarrassing things. Yep. And so there's some like bonus content in that. Inside of that, you can also, if you join us on Patreon... We'll shout out to you at the end of an episode and say thanks for supporting us. We're going to send you notes potentially of our episodes. If you sign up at the right level, you'll get early access to our episodes. You'll get uncut versions of our episodes also with our gaffes and Mm -hmm. attempts at pronunciations and things like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you can support us by going to Patreon. Our lowest tier level is $1 a month and then up to just, you know, a lot higher than that. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't want to support us that way, you can also just leave us a, a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, as they say, smash that subscribe button. Yeah, I think that's what they do on the internet now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it felt gross just saying it <laughs> i know it feels weird i don't like it uh, basically basically what we're saying is if you if you want to support the show there are a lot of different ways to do it you can do it for free or you can do it for money if you get if you give us money you get more bonus content if you do it for free then that's great too and we still appreciate you that was so much better uh, so much a better <laughs> way to say that than what i was trying so thank you let's go ahead and talk about our topic today as i said we we're talking about the sort of guardianship conservatorship thing this is made immediately relevant more recently by the case with Britney Spears, and we are going to talk about that. But first, we should do a little bit of an overview of what we're doing today. So we are going to start with the idea of, and we're really going to dig into this idea of conservatorship, but one thing that we really want to make sure is important for everybody to note is that conservatorship laws and guardianship laws are going to vary from state to state, much like accents, firework laws, sales tax, and vaccine compliance. That's right. You're going to see variations of this in every single state. And so this is from a United States perspective. Yes, yes, which is a whole other thing too. But what we're going to focus on today is specifically a lot of California law because we are going to talk about Britney Spears and that whole thing. And it's important to understand kind of how the conservatorship in California works. So the judicial branch of California defines a conservatorship as, quote, a court case where a judge appoints a responsible person or organization called the conservator to care for another adult called the conservatee 
who cannot care for himself or herself or manage his or her own finances. End quote. So that's what we're going to be basing a lot of this episode on is the idea that somebody else is responsible for making all of the decisions for another adult in adulthood. And yeah, we will actually talk about there are various sort of levels of conservatorship. So let's talk about the what, the what of conservatorship and the different types. So we've got a probate type, temporary conservatorship, and then a Lanterman Petrus Short conservatorship. Man, those are a lot of consonants. <laughs> In a way. Yes. So. Yes. 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 <laughs> All right. And inside the probate, again, this is based on California probate code. We've got a general conservatorship and a limited conservatorship. Now, the general conservatorship, this is for adults who cannot take care of themselves or their finances. So, it does raise the question does this mean every millennial who buys avocado toast instead of paying rent should qualify for this? <laughs> Maybe. Probably. <laughs> Often, elderly folks or seriously impaired younger people following like a significant accident or, or something of that nature, mm -hmm. they'll depend on conservatorships or they'll be the subject of a general conservatorship, a general conservative conservatorship. I'm going to struggle with that word. I'm going to do my best, <laughs> but uh, this is a permanent or at least sort of a rather indefinite agreement in terms of how long it will take place. The idea is that this is in place for the long haul for this individual. Yeah. And we don't know what that long haul is. So it's essentially to be determined is at the end result there. Right. So with limited conservatorship, this is usually for adults with developmental disabilities who cannot fully care for themselves or their finances. Ironically, they often do not need the same high level of care as those in general conservatorship as the DD diagnosis doesn't by default imply physical disability. So we both work in spaces where developmental disabilities tend to be pretty prevalent. Yeah. And I've worked with plenty of adults who have IDDD diagnoses and they can live on their own. They can manage their finances. They can do quite a bit and there's no physical disability that prevents them from caring for themselves. And this usually lasts about a year and then they reassess to see if they should continue. And if the individual gets public assistance, such as for example, social security, which we can kiss that goodbye in a couple yeah, of years, pretty much Ooh. or making a living wage, their estate does not require a conservatorship. So that's just something to consider in terms of what is entailed and not entailed by the limited conservatorship as well. Yeah. Now, we also mentioned the temporary conservatorship, and this must be filed simultaneously with a petition for a general conservatorship. So they sort of go together, but it allows someone to care for the individual in the interim period while it's processed, meaning that just because you file for a conservatorship doesn't mean that you are immediately going to be the conservator. What you can do is you can file this temporary one, meaning that until you get approved to be a conservator, you can still be a conservator. Yep, absolutely. And then there's also the Lanterman Petrus Short or LPS conservatorship. This is for individuals with the most severe behavior and mental illness receiving substantial help for mental health or are living in secure facilities. They may not agree willingly to the conservatorship. So that becomes a kind of a unique thing. They may not be, they might not have any say in the application of a conservatorship, they may have entered into that unwillfully. Right. An important point in all this, and, and one of the assumptions that we want to kind of make sure is clear on this, is that in each of these types of conservatorship, the assumption is that the person or the subject, the conservatee, is somebody who is no longer able to meet their own needs in some way, shape, or form, whether it's due to physical ability, developmental disability, or mental illness. And as a result, somebody else has to step in and take care of their stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's a good point to interject here that this was set up to be a good thing. This was set up because there were certain people who 
they might not have anyone sort of in their court helping them with their resources. And there is a market for people to exploit vulnerable populations. This is people who defraud the elderly, who go after to try and get the money from people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities or people who are otherwise physically disabled. There is a very predatory market to take money from those people because wherever there is money, someone will will try and take it. Guaranteed. Oh, 100%. And if there is any kind of weakness around the protection of that money, then they're much more likely to, to focus their attention there. So it's worth acknowledging that this was intended to be a way to protect and assist those people by having someone else sort of look out for their well-being. And I think that in a lot of cases, it does that very well. And so even though we're going to talk about a very specific instance in which it doesn't really do that very well, the conservatorship in and of itself, I don't think is a, is a bad thing. I think that it has probably been used to good effect for many people. Absolutely. So for the most part, it's a system designed to support folks who need it, but there's always going to be cracks and in, in kinks in the armor that we got to be able to address. Absolutely. All right. So what does the conservator conserve? Is it water? The environment? Is it Mitt Romney? BYU? <laughs> <laughs> so many things to conserve. So the person cares for and protects the conservatee. That's that's who they're conserving. So this is meals, health care, clothing, personal care, housekeeping, transportation, shelter, recreation, and well-being. There's a lot that a conservator is technically responsible for. And so what's to stop a conservator, though, from saying, you now eat only vegan, no COVID vaccine, you're wearing tidy whities no more recycling, we're only traveling via tandem bicycle, <laughs> and we're living under the bridge because I love chili peppers and you don't. Hashtag for your health. <laughs> if you couldn't tell, these notes were by our good friend, Alan. Yes. So thank you, Alan. <laughs> we got to say thank you to Alan. We'll say thank you again at the end. But um, this yeah. is... Uh, Classic Alan. Classic Alan. The point I think he's making is that although a conservator is responsible for a lot of these things, for an individual, how one defines or provides or meets the criteria for those things, I think allows for room for the potential for abuse. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So a conservator of the estate, they're going to handle the conservatives' financial matters. How convenient they That's manage right. their money. Note that the website that we're pulling from says, quote, and collecting a person's income, end quote. So I guess some people misinterpret this like a mobster collecting the take from, but keeping some for himself. Like sometimes that happens. Skimming off the top. Yeah, skimming off the top. There's, there's, they're taking their cut. So the conservator of the estate manages finances, controlling assets, collecting the income, making a budget, paying bills, investing the money, protecting the assets. So if you're a conservator, if like, let's say your conservator says the play is buying weed stocks, Bitcoin, and the entire Beanie Baby Bear collection on eBay, then that's what's up. That's what they can do. They're allowed to make those decisions for that person, even if it's not that in that person's best interest. Exactly right. Now, one type does not guarantee the other. Each requires its own unique petition to acquire. So just because you are a conservator of the person does not mean that you become a conservator of their estate, but you can be both. Mm -hmm. Now, the conservator is to report to the court, report to the court <laughs> on the current state of the conservatee. To what extent this opinion is trusted is discussed later in this episode. But yeah, so that's just a, another thing to note as well is that there is some amount of oversight, but that oversight is like, the person showing up probably and saying things are good. And the court's like, sweet, 
have a good day. Yeah, especially if they have like well-written reports and like a lawyer that back it up, then it becomes a whole different issue, which we will talk about. Yeah, yeah, this extends this. I mean, we're not going to go as far as this potentially extends, but the implications and, and what's going on here, this is actually relevant to an enormous amount of the systems in the United States in particular, but I think in a lot of other governing bodies as well, where mm-hmm. there's asked to be checks and balances. Someone says, okay, and then that's as far as that system goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it stops with one check, one balance. Right. <laughs> so that begs the question, who can be a conservator? So like who is going to be the people that the court or some kind of law system is saying that you are responsible enough to govern the rights of another human being? Can it be my cat? Yeah, yeah like your cat. It could be your cat. <laughs> or it could be a spouse or domestic partner, a relative, an interested state or local entity or agency, a friend or someone else nominated by the conservatee. Although this can be vetoed by the court if the nominee is deemed incompetent and similar to beneficiaries for finances, the court follows a hierarchy when in doubt. So it goes kind of like this. A spouse or domestic partner would be the first conservator, an adult child, a parent, a sibling, another known person or a public guardian. Any of those people can deflect to the next tier if they choose not to accept. But it goes in that order. It starts with a spouse or domestic partner moving through children all the way at the very last bit being a public guardian or somebody who's provided by the state. I like that you set up the and it goes a little something like this. That's why I wanted to do the, the vocal percussion under in the background. The next question I think to discuss here is what rights the conservatee has for their own advocacy. Now, as you might imagine, fortunately, there does seem to be a grounding in the person's best interest, and that's that's sort of the founding principle behind this thing. At least to the extent that the person at risk complies with a plan of action, signs a power of attorney designating someone to help with their affairs, or legally designate someone else via a joint title, living trusts, restraining orders to exclude, or other various arrangements. And the difference between power of attorney and conservatorship, those do seem like they're overlapping concepts. What they have in common is they both involve caring for someone who is incapacitated, but with a power of attorney, this is arranged before someone loses their capacity, be it mental or physical or whatever. And in a conservatorship, it's ordered by a judge after the fact, although that person might, again, petition to take that role. Mm -hmm. So for those who are not currently in an incapacitated state, signing a power of attorney document is your best chance against risking a court-appointed conservatorship. So they have a lot in common, but... In one instance, you can sort of select and say, this is the person who I'm giving power of attorney. And the other one, the court said it sort of says, this is the person who we're giving that authority. And you don't necessarily have a say in that. These processes are similar and they do kind of the same thing. But a lot of it is when these types of things take place. Yeah. Conservatorships are often done after the fact because there's maybe some kind of like immediate emergency or something has changed in that person's life that there needs to be somebody stepping in like it's it's essentially like a like you step in to intervene not you prepare to need to intervene and again the one of the relevant and important things here is the fact that this person they hypothetically cannot make that decision for themselves and that's why someone else steps in to intervene because it's not like they're saying well you just didn't do it soon enough so now we're taking over it's the fact that that person is no longer capable of or at least is deemed no longer capable of making that decision absolutely So how does this get set up? So first, someone known to the individual will file a petition with the court indicating why all other functional alternatives to the situation have failed or would fail. Essentially, they have to make the case like, hey, if we try anything else, it's going to suck. 
you know, but here we're going to try, we need to do this because of X, Y, and Z. And the burden of proof is on the petitioner, on the person who is petitioning to be the conservator. Sure. They have to demonstrate that there is a problem. And then they have to inform the proposed conservatee in writing with a citation listing the proposed conservator. So they have to be able to say, hey, this is what's going on. I've informed you that I am petitioning for this. This is where we're going to go next. If the person who is petitioning to be the conservator is not already a relative of the conservatee, then the new putative or would-be conservator is obligated to inform the conservatee's relatives of the arrangement that's about to take place. Now, there's going to be a hearing, and the individual must be able to attend unless they're unable due to illness. And then the judge determines if a lawyer needs to be present to represent the conservatee. Can, there might be some interests there where there's some concern over exploitation. Mm-hmm. And then the judge hears the case, makes a ruling, and then this could mean that it quickly freezes all of the conservatives' assets right in that moment. Yeah, which that is, I mean, that could be incredibly debilitating, right? Like right in that moment, all of a sudden, you can't manage any of your finances, and it's because somebody said no. Yeah, and I think if you're in a position where you feel like you should be able to advocate for yourself... And some, this is all happening around you where someone else is saying this person doesn't deserve, like they can't take care of themselves. I'm going to step in and take care of them. Their money is now my money. Their assets are my, now my assets. Their behavior is now under my control. And, and you're sitting there going, no, I don't want any of these things. And they're like, Shh, hush yeah. you. And the court's just yeah. like, I'm, I'm with that guy. Yeah. That could probably feel pretty crappy. Yeah, Absolutely. Another important part of this that we are talking about is this idea of a court investigator. So the court investigator in this plays a pretty unique role. They're expected to meet privately with the conservatee, explain the benefits of the arrangement, express the conservatee's rights to a lawyer and objection, including a trial by jury. And then the investigator is granted access to confidential medical records to help make a case on if the conservatee can and should attend any hearing. So they basically say this person should or should not attend. The investigator should also consent with the conservatives' relatives to determine if still necessary, if it's if the conservatorship is necessary, right, and to make recommendations about the case. So they have a lot of things that they're doing within this. They also check in again after six months and then annually. So the court investigator stays involved with this case after the, the determinations are made. They are constantly checking in to see how things are going and making sure that's happening. Now, the reports they write, can be reduced over time if there's no issue, but the contact must still occur at least annually. And the investigator is supposed to visit the conservatee in the event of a big change that's requested by the conservator, like selling a house, moving them, big medical decisions, specifically reproductive rights. And we'll talk about that with Britney Spears. Yeah, that's going to come up. Replacing the conservator, requesting a temporary appointment, all of those things, the investigator is supposed to be involved in that. So hopefully they're not an easily bribed individual. Yes, absolutely. Or like an an overworked individual who's just sort of ticking off boxes to get their quota done. Right, because we all know how social work works sometimes. And unfortunately, their social services systems are not, there's not a great infrastructure because the workers are burnt. Yeah, yeah. There's too much need and not enough people. It is a drastically overtaxed system. And when systems become drastically overtaxed, then the integrity starts to decrease this is almost never the fault of any one person, but of decisions that are made that result in a bottleneck of resources, I think is the way to put it. So absolutely. All right. So that's more or less the process of the conservatorship, kind of how it begins, how it gets set up, how it flows. Now we also get to the point of what happens when a conservatorship terminates, because as we said, these aren't necessarily permanent. 
Now, a conservatorship ends when the conservatee becomes able to handle their own affairs. Again, you can imagine how subjective this could be <laughs> and made to be, particularly dep depending on the controlling conservator. And so if you have someone who is continuing to argue, they're still not able to handle their own affairs. You know, if they're the one appointed to speak for that person, then it almost doesn't matter what that person has to say. Right. And again, I don't think most of the time that's the case. I think most of the time what happens is you have someone who's like actually in that person's side and they're doing the right thing, or at least a lot of the time. Right. I, I don't know how often, but it does seem like there are people who are legitimately trying to do the right thing in this. Yeah, absolutely. If there are no assets remain to conserve, to quote Elon Musk, if you don't make stuff, there's no stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if there's nothing to conserve then there's no need to have somebody oversee nothing uh, yeah exactly it's like dividing by zero uh, yeah yeah exactly right yeah. of course if the conservative dies which hopefully is not the case and hopefully definitely not the responsibility of the conservator yeah if the court removes the conservator this could be initiated by other relatives or some of those other people we mentioned in the hierarchy or if the conservator dies or resigns so it's sort of like how you get out of student loans basically <laughs> that's I mean, that's that's the easiest way to get out of it. That's right. So the thing is, is that whenever it's coming to a decision or discussion about conservatorship ending, the court is going to reassess for a new appointment of the conservator. It's not just that it stops. It's that that triggers a reassessment. Yeah. And it should be mentioned that several websites for law firms or disability rights groups based in California heavily advise on their website to set up alternatives to conservatorships ahead of time to avoid those mishaps. So if there is a sudden death, if there's a sudden change in appointment, if anything like that happens, you have to have a plan B, they strongly recommend it. And while this isn't always feasible in a situation for somebody who's experiencing a lifelong disabled state, for those who are of sound capacity at the moment, this might help avoid being at the mercy of the court. This is going to this is gonna allow that person to advocate for themselves and not produce a situation where now they're getting bounced around in a court of law with people making decisions for them without their voice being heard. Now, the other part of this is the question comes down to, can't the conservatee express their own opinion at some point? Maybe, maybe we could talk about that. Maybe things have changed on their end. Maybe they can state that they're ready for a change in conservatorship. Maybe they can advocate for themselves, right? So let's talk about that for a second. Essentially, they can if the judge allows them to, because really only the judge has the power to lift the arrangement and the conservatee isn't always entitled to having the power of a lawyer involved. So further, the conservatee's access to the courts is often inhibited by the conservator having heavy influence on access on that access itself, the access to the courts. So it's kind of like the warden Norton in the Shawshank Redemption blocking the truth about Andy Dufresne's innocence, specifically to keep him locked up for his, so that the warden can continue his nefarious scamming. Spoiler mm -hmm. warning for those who haven't seen this 30-year-old movie. Uh -huh. We can only hope that Brittany escapes to Mexico one day as well. Yep, yep. So essentially what that's saying is like, the conservator can say, no, you can't go to court to the person that they're supposed to be protecting. Right. Which I don't know if you all get the implication with that. That sounds pretty sketchy. That doesn't that that does not sound like a good situation to be in. Right. Now and I just want to keep it in the point that presumably this is a person who really can't advocate for themselves. They couldn't ask to go to court. Even if they went to court, they wouldn't be able to ask for a change for some reason. And I actually think that this applies probably to people who suddenly were in like a coma, for example. Yeah. And it's like they didn't have a power of attorney addressed. And so they're sort of saying, let's say we have a wealthy celebrity who has a lot of responsibilities, a lot of assets, 
and they are suddenly in a coma and can't respond, what's going to happen to all that money? Because the sharks will come. Yes. And so someone steps in, says, hey, I'm going to I'm going to take control of this. And so even if that person's in a coma for like five years, you can wheel them into the court, but they're probably not going to say very much in their defense. And so once something else changes about that situation, then that can be assessed. But for those other people that, that can advocate for themselves and they say, I want a different conservator. I want to end this conservatorship. I want something to change, whatever it might be. They have to go to a judge. The judge could side with them and say, yep, you're right. But access to that judge is under the control of the conservator. So if there is something like this conservator is abusive, they're exploitative, they are taking advantage of a person, and then they say, nope, you don't get to go see the judge, then you're kind of at a loss, right? And that's exactly it, is the conservator ultimately has so much power in a situation that they can maintain that power for extended periods of time without the conservatee being able to have a voice in that particular situation. Enter Britney Spears. It's Britney, bitch. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Britney. So in short, Britney is a famous example of what some are finding that is all too common in these systems. Those who wind up in conservatorships that they can't escape. So right now, if you're not familiar, her father, Jamie, let's pause for a moment and acknowledge that he freaking skipped Britney before naming his second daughter after himself and his now ex-wife. Hmm. Sketchy. Suspect. We don't like that. They say never trust someone with two first names, but I'm I'm taking Debbie Harry and Chris Paul over a dude who exploited his daughter as a sex symbol and then robbed her slowly. Just to be clear, it's very clear our bias is against Jamie Spears. Okay, and we'll talk about an update on this, but we're we're going to just follow the timeline for a moment here. So since 2008, Jamie, her dad, has been the co-conservator along with an outside financial group called the Bessemer Trust, who more recently filed a petition to be removed after Brittany initiated legal proceedings. This followed Brittany's hospitalization for mental health issues after her divorce from Kevin Federline in 2007. And during the same time, she also lost custody of both her children and had an incident in 2008 in which she did not deliver her sons when she was ordered to deliver them. Right. And so that that's how this sort of began the process. Yeah, so everybody is familiar with that period of time where she shaved her head, that she came after the paparazzi with the umbrella, that she there, there she had the very public meltdown. This this whole process started right around then and after then. Right. That situation was leveraged to say, you know, she's she's clearly unstable. She can't manage her stuff. She needs help. She needs somebody to do this. It became this kind of snowball effect that resulted in where we're at now. Now To play devil's advocate, though, because it is important to recognize this. First of all, we're not legal experts. Okay. True. And second of all, nobody on Facebook, unless you have gone to school for legal things, is also not a legal expert. So there's a lot of people that kind of like spout that. But to play devil's advocate, we as the public don't have access to records that the court used to determine her current situation. We don't know any diagnoses. We don't know what other options were tried. We don't know to what extent Brittany demonstrated incompetence initially at the very beginning of this. We don't know that that is not public information. It's a fair point, you know? Yeah. And that's fair. I mean, that's true for literally anybody in these situations. Like there's a lot of information that is kept private and deservedly so that the public shouldn't have access to. We shouldn't have access to that information. Yeah, things can look bad w- where they aren't necessarily the way they seem because you don't have access to privileged information. Right, right. Not the case for like Rudy Giuliani and Matt Gates, who like the more we learn, <laughs> the more evil, corrupt and messed up it seems yeah. to be. 
Yeah, the more gross they are, and yeah, we don't like them. Exactly. But what we see in the tabloids is an emotionally invested fan interpretation, right? That being said, Brittany is indicated some distress about the situation. She has indicated some of that distress, which should always warrant at least a thorough review. Absolutely. And so given given the pattern of exploitative conservatorships with less affluent conservatees, it wouldn't be surprising if this arrangement was being abused. And so it's worth, because of the amount of money, the size of the estate, the celebrity that's involved in this, it is worth giving it a little more, maybe a better look in like looking at the details a little bit, you know, a little bit more closely. Yeah. And so I don't know if this is playing devil's advocate still, but essentially what what's worth revealing about the situation in Britney Spears case is that she went from being in debt to having a lot of money. Jamie's legal team argues that his influence as her conservator was largely beneficial and working. He credits himself and the team with bringing her state to a value of over $60 million. And again, this is up from otherwise being in debt before he took over as the conservator and claims that he helped restore her good health to a place where she could function with her family. And so he's at least got you know the financial outcome as some kind of evidence to support his being a benefit of being responsible for her estate. But again, this does bring up an interesting discussion about things like therapy, medication, et cetera, that are implemented to help someone and sometimes get misinterpreted as a short dose experience that can eventually be discontinued. And while this might be the case with certain things, reality is more often than not, the system needs to remain in place for an individual's success. For some people, having a conservator might be like, wearing glasses you know it helps you see clearer that's sort of i think a place where you could take this discussion now i want to be clear we're not taking his side we're just trying to paint as complete a picture as possible because i think we're going to discuss where this started to not work very well here in a moment right so we're going to talk some numbers we're going to talk some situations first i want you to hear this number four hundred and twenty six thousand dollars that's more than i make <laughs> that's more than i make that's more than i've ever made let's i mean i assume so this is essentially what her dad wanted he wanted this amount of money per year for his quote obligation fees Brittany claims that he overextends his influence on her decisions leaving her with no independence toward anything including the color of her cabinets who she dates etc so while he's kind of leveraging this financial gain and this financial support and building up this estate Brittany is not claiming that that's a problem. She's claiming these other overextended concerns are the bigger problem. Those those micromanaging, those minor things that are really removing the independence from her life. Now, getting into some updates here, Brittany expressed interest in hiring a professional private fiduciary. I'll just let you say that <laughs> one for a second. Yeah, fiduciary. This is someone trained for such responsibility. And Jamie volunteered to step down in 2019, given health issues, and a woman named Jody Montgomery and Bessemer Trust remained in place. Jamie does remain legally involved, much to Brittany's dismay. And Brittany's mother, Lynn, has also petitioned for involvement in this, but has been denied. So this is sort of where things are going at the moment. So again, we don't have the details right now of why Lynn was denied we don't have i mean we only have what's being shared in the public right there's probably more detail more information here that we just don't know about on both sides and so that's where it's like these decisions are being made and, and just enough information is being shared to kind of like give the public something to talk about right yeah basically so for example britney's attorney referred to her as quote a high functioning conservative end quote 
which is interesting here to replace conservatee with client. If we were to talk about clients at all, you could say a high functioning client, high functioning student. And a lot of people don't even kind of use that term anymore. High functioning term. Yeah. The, the term high functioning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of getting removed from the lexicon of like working with like individuals with special needs and disabilities, because it's not really a great indicator of what that person's capable of or their, you know, their kind of that kind of thing. Well, it also implies a certain level of like high is a qualitative term, like high functioning. This implies like a sort of judgment about where what some as you sort of said what someone's capable of doing and where i think it shows just sort of a lack of respect for their autonomy and and sort of rights as a human absolutely and and this is a hot topic in the asd community for sure like this is something that's that's prompting a renewed discussion around like unlike descriptors and characteristics and and like having discussions about folks from that from that community yeah and with those folks from that community so like it's really kind of a unique thing so the term high functioning is kind of like becoming like a, a flavor of the week. It's like moving away and we're moving into different discussions around that that are a little bit more nuanced. Now, what's important though too is Brittany's other accusations of the egregious handling of her conservatorship include things like being forced to take drugs after refusing to perform, being barred from removing a birth control device from her body and being restricted from privacy. That has nothing to do with finances. Right. So if Jamie's if Jamie's argument is finances, this has nothing to do with finances. This is a whole different scenario. Yeah, this is the on the person in addition to the estates. This is both. As you said, she has an IUD in, which prevents her from being able to get pregnant, although she's reported to want to have more children. And this gets in this interesting discussion of like of reproductive rights, as you sort of said, like Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that Brittany does have a diagnosable mental health condition that makes her less able to manage her own affairs. Like, let's just say that's a thing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I'm not saying that it is, but if we have that assumption, does that by implication mean she does not have a right per the government, per her family, per anything to make decisions about whether or not she can then have children? I think that most people are going to say she absolutely does have that right. Yes. Like that shouldn't be anybody's choice, but hers. Right. Absolutely. I think I can understand people, I guess maybe feeling a little concerned about that, but honestly, I'm like, that's just, that's not your business. That's not your place. Like we're not in a position of regulating people's reproductive rights. That's something we've been fighting for a long time <laughs> is this idea that, that that's something the government should or any anybody really should be able to have a say in people's re reproductive health and reproductive rights. So, yeah, it seems like that's a that's a hard, a hard pill to swallow in this case. I don't understand how that even became a thing, except for the fact that maybe Jamie's overreaching. There may be and, and I'm going to play just a quick devil's advocate just to kind of like illustrate an example. There may be some debilitating medical condition that might put Brittany at danger if she gets pregnant. That's true. However, however, that is not his choice. That's true. That is not his choice to make. So that's what it comes down to is like, there's people that will make the argument. What if she got pregnant and died? What if daughter, what if she died? Like that is not for anybody, but her to make, that is her choice to make. And she is, if she's a high functioning conservatee, then she is capable of having a discussion around that and making an educated decision about her rights her reproductive rights. We are not living in a space in a country where we should be considering sterilization for anybody. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Or like, you know, blocking those sorts of things. No, I like it. I like the soapbox. And I think the related to that is just if, if somehow Brittany getting pregnant would like result in the potential death and harm of, you know, dozens or even hundreds of people around her, 
then I could see the court saying like, no, you don't get to make this choice, but that's just not like, that's not how reproduction works. <laughs> I just, I just had the thought of like, if she got pregnant, like her whole staff dies, like, <laughs> yeah, like she exploded and it took out like a building with her and that killed a bunch of people. Yeah. That'd be real bad. And there was like a good reasonably that, but that's not, like, that's never happened to anybody ever. Right. But the, what I bring this up because there are people who believe that they should have certain rights to put other people at risk which i think they do not have and that her getting pregnant is not putting other people at risk it's it's putting herself right. potentially but even then that's just saying as you said that's devil's advocate is if that was the case and we don't even think that it is like it seems like she'd be just fine if she wanted to have more kids we have no right to tell her she can't exactly it's her it's her body i mean i guess we could say it we, we could say you can't we, we have no authority to actually Im- impose that restriction on her nor should we be able to well right we might have an opinion but jamie is like literally leveraging legal action to prevent her from doing that like is literally using a legally allowed conservatorship to prevent her reproductive rights right. that is like on the surface is insane yeah. to think about not okay. Agreed. <laughs> now, it is worth noting that Brittany's biggest concern so far seems to be removing her father from the situation rather than necessarily removing the conservatorship altogether. What this says about the issues behind the scenes, again, remains unclear. And we also don't know exactly what's being requested, but it seems like there's credible evidence suggesting that at least her father Jamie's role in the arrangement needs to be reviewed, altered, yeah. and potentially changed. That's just, again, we're trying to be as comprehensive here as possible. That's where we kind of talk about some considerations in this situation, right? So the first consideration is, does a person have the right to their own success or failure? You know, philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau <laughs> is quoted as saying, quote, every man has the right to risk his own life in order to preserve it, end quote. So who are we to judge differently? Obviously, this opens up an extremely big gray area, right? This opens up a lot of like, autonomy and decision making especially when it comes to like people like being potentially harmful to themselves well and Brittany does not identify as a man as far as i know so this may not may not apply to her yeah it's all yeah it's a whole different thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah looking looking at exactly the issue just as you were describing a member of the aclu's disability rights program the current arrangement limits quote a person's ability to advocate for themselves learn from their decisions and mistakes and grow and develop there's a risk in being told that your opinions your likes and dislikes don't matter it makes it harder to stand up to abuse or neglect end quote so they're basically arguing that right now it's too far reaching right it's too restrictive and it has too little opportunities to prevent things like exploitation abuse and neglect yep absolutely the ACLU also has also, quote, advocated for expanding supported decision making and an alternative to conservatorship or guardianship where people with disabilities can choose trusted support people to help them direct their lives without court intervention or loss of civil rights, end quote. And ultimately, that's what this kind of comes down to, right? This is an issue. This is a civil rights issue at some point in time. This is a person's autonomy being restricted. And that's a lot of where these discussions are leading when it comes to the free Britney situation. Now, again, just to play devil's advocate is I think that the people who hear that and say they might say something along the lines of what about somebody who comes in, who is a swindler, who is a cheat? They befriend this person and they make them believe that they should trust them with their with their resources and their and their finances and their general well-being, even though they don't actually have an interest in that person's well-being. And this has now been opened up because of the ACLU's efforts so that someone like that can come and take advantage of that person 
then that would that would be a worse situation. I would respond to that two ways. One is I would say, first, I think that the circumstances under which that are likely to happen are fairly rare. Mm-hmm. I don't think there'd be a lot of people in that position who would be in a better position than someone else to be a conservator and to help maintain that position. And two, with the system that's proposed, that new person could then be challenged by someone else potentially or by the individual in question because, again, they have the right to advocate for themselves more. So once they realize or if they realize they're being taken advantage of or someone else has evidence to that, then it should open up that system to allow it to continue to move. So although I think there is, it's legitimate to say that could open the door for, you know, charlatans and people who are seeking malfeasance, you know? Yeah. I don't think that that would actually be as big of a problem as would be the advantage from the rights gained for those people. That's my thought anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I mean, a system like this should operate with two specific things in mind, a good structure to protect the person who is being served by this conservatorship and the, in the voice of the conservatee who is involved in that situation. Those two things should be the primary drivers for any of this stuff. And there should be a nice balance where ultimately the person that is the conservatee is protected. Yes. That's what it comes down to protected. And in that they are heard that there is a voice in that situation where there absolutely can be. And every single effort should be made so that the person who is the conservatee should still have a voice in that situation. hundred percent agree. And it seems like in this situation with Britney Spears specifically, that's not exactly the case. Like she's out loud saying, I don't like this and the courts going too bad. And that's where we're running into an issue with this particular conservatorship is that she's saying, this is not a good thing. I'm not being heard. And then it leads to, some other situations, right? So like in this case, there seems to be this kind of vicious cycle. The effects of this fractured, overreaching conservatorship seem to manifest as distressed behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Like you could absolutely look at her behavior and go, she's being erratic. She's being over the top, whatever it is. Some people can make that argument. I've seen people make that argument. I would make the argument that like, that's the only way that people are hearing her. Right. Right. She's saying out loud, this is, it's taking this long and this she's probably fighting this conservatorship for years and years and years only now to be heard, right? So this could be misinterpreted as justifying the conservatorship. People can go, oh, look, see, she's acting irrational. This is why she needs a conservatorship. And then the whole thing begins again. This kind of reminds me of the quote from Stephen Jay Gould. He says something along the lines of, so if you're flipping a coin, heads, I win, tails, you lose. Yeah. And it's sort of like, yeah, there's just no situation in which, you know, Brittany is able to sort of walk out of this benefiting from the situation. Right. And and that's ultimately what it comes down to. Does the conservatorship, does she need it because she's lost it? Or is the conservatorship making her lose it again and again and again, justifying the need for the conservatorship? Right. And that's exactly what's going on here. Or at least what it looks like, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Without without all the information, that is how it sort of appears to be what could be happening. Which, again, just at the very right. least, requires some amount of review to ensure that there's no exploitation. Ideally, she does not have to report that, that things are not going well because things are, are going well. You know, that would be the ideal situation right. and not because something bad has happened right. or is she's being silenced. Exactly. So that sort of leads to talking about what can go wrong on these conservatorships. As we said, these are really meant to be a mechanism of protection. It seems for a lot of people, maybe most people, it does work that way, but this shines a light on a wave of elder abuse across the country, medical neglect, money theft. We heard a little bit about this potentially with Stan Lee Mm -hmm. and someone who was responsible for his estate as well. So 
for those of you who don't know, he's one of the the major creators and and creative forces behind Marvel comics and the characters in Marvel and that sort of thing. Yep. Supposedly, <laughs> Supposedly. we won't get into we won't get into that. No, but yeah, that that was a whole thing when he was getting older and he was nearing his deathbed and stuff. There was a whole lot of discussion around how he was being taken care of. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Both from known people appointed as conservator and third party court appointed conservators. And this could be the result of incompetency. You know, most people, even loving relatives, are not trained or experienced in the logistics of conservatorship and what that entails. Conservatorships in California technically shouldn't be granted until all other options have been attempted. If a less restrictive option is still on the table, this should bar a conservatorship from being granted. Yeah. Unfortunately, from an ACLU interview, this is just not always the case. Fees for the service can range from hourly amounts between $50 to $135 an hour, but estate management trustees and professionals can charge between 1% to 1.5% of the asset value annually. So what that means, I know it's a lot of numbers and kind of throwing that out there, but what that means, and in Britney Spears' case, for instance, she's worth, let's say, $60 million. Then 1% is $600,000. So they can charge that annually, right, for just managing her assets. I don't know the the breakdown on this because a lot of times what someone's net worth is, is tied up in assets and is not necessarily liquid. And so someone making that kind of money off of them can be extremely draining on the resources. Yeah. And I just don't know. I don't know what the, how the breakdown goes in terms of whether they're considering what's considered a liquid versus a, a non-available asset and that sort of thing. Right. Absolutely. And T.S. Laham. I'm going to say Laham. It could be pronounced in different ways. Probably Laham. Yeah, probably Laham. <laughs> Laham. I like the, the French version of the ham. In a book called The Con Game, A Failure of Trust, is about the matter and stresses that conservatorship should always be a last-ditch option, even amidst a family dispute about who will take the responsibility And that is going to prompt a conversation about least restrictive options, right? So every individual who is living deserves to have an opportunity to engage and live in a world where they have as little restrictions as possible, right? And so you'll see this a lot in special needs where folks will have more restrictive options because somebody deems that they're not able to care for themselves. But let's say an individual was to be in a situation where they require a conservatorship. This should mean that the previously mentioned alternatives have all been exhausted and didn't work and didn't work. Like that's not just like saying like, oh, that won't work. Right. They should have tested that and seen that it didn't work. Yes. Right. So like, for example, on behavior analysis, we might experience this when we've exhausted several reinforcement based strategies or non-intrusive program ideas and are left with an array of options that may seem more restrictive or more. Or I don't have another really great word for it, but I feel like restrictive is probably what we're looking at. Right. Yeah, yeah. I guess less open to the option for a more voluntary sort of outcome, I guess. Yeah. This seems really ambiguous the way I'm saying it, but I think just saying that we want this to be a positive experience as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And so despite all the controversy, there's a time and a place for such methods, but at least in ABA, there exists a strict ethical code that would hopefully preclude a professional from acting in any sort of way where they get to this least restrictive environment. So for example, if I'm working with somebody who is aggressive and highly aggressive and dangerous, well, I'm going to want to exhaust every single reinforcement strategy, every single teaching strategy that I can think of before I ever have to use any sort of physical management strategies, like a restraint to protect them, right? Like, or to protect everybody involved. Like, I don't want to have to use restraint and that's going to be a last, last, last resort. That's a plan triple Z, you know, at the end of the day. (laughs) 
You know, and that's really what I try to aim for. It's like, there's something missing. I got to do all these other things first. So the difference is, though, with conservators, what ethical code is your cousin Eddie or Jamie Spears or an appointed stranger bound by? They're probably not, right? There's probably some minor legal boundaries, yeah. but nothing nothing to that ethical code. Maybe in the latter there exists one, but all the above are expected to act in good faith, which is kind of a unique problem. And while some who wear rose-colored glasses might expect that to happen. Those of us living in reality know that the fruits of temptation are often the sweetest. Therefore, <laughs> rethinking the rights of conservatives on a legislative level is the most effective next step to address this particular concern. Woo! Woo! Did it. I feel good about that, and I agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment, but I do have to give Alan credit on that. That was written by Alan, and I feel I could feel his passion in that one. Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, yeah. <laughs> I just <laughs> want to have hands in there saying, preach it. Preach it, brother. <laughs> right? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the future. In the year 2000. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Robots taking over. Mm -hmm. All right. Two members of the House, Charlie Crist, Democrat, and Nancy Mace, Republican, introduced a bipartisan. You heard that right. Bipartisan <laughs> means different people on different parties agreed on something. Uh-huh. It happened. A bipartisan bill called the Freedom and Right to Emancipate from Exploitation Act. This is also called the Free Act. Don't you just love how they bend words to fit the acronym? <laughs> you know, yeah, seriously. I want to drop the and and the to and the from and the last act. I want to call it the Free Act. <laughs> so wild. I guess the act was still in there. Just the, the and and the from and the to are all gone. Yeah. The free. Yeah. Yeah. Call Congress what you want, but they do love naming things and coming up with acronyms that omit certain words. Yeah. If only the things that they named did things, right? Yeah, one day, one day. <laughs> I, I want to take a quick sidebar yeah. before we get into this. Charlie Crist is a Democrat from Florida. So this is coming from somebody from Florida. And I want I want to point that out. I have to I want to say that because I feel like Florida gets so much crap for so many things. This is one of those things that is not so crappy. I was just going to say that uh, I didn't realize he was from Florida. I didn't realize Florida had Democrats. Yeah, it's weird, right? Yeah. They're mostly in Orlando. Oh, okay. And maybe <laughs> Miami. Oh, my, yeah, yeah, kid, yeah, sometimes. Okay, mostly Orlando. Got it. Yeah, mostly Orlando. The free act, the free act that does not cost you anything, it would accomplish <laughs> two things. <laughs> it does. It costs you lots of tax dollars. This gives the conservative the right to replace their conservator with a public one pending a comprehensive review, which as of now is difficult, as we mentioned, given the oppressive oversight of the current conservator. And this can be done without having to prove abuse or fraud first, which is important, right? Yes. The second thing that it does is it streamlines conservatorship systems to a federal level to alleviate state-by-state -state issues and provide federal oversight and accountability to the whole system. And so, again, while I think some people might be hesitant about that because they want you know states to have their own rules, the problem is that that fractured system can start to get really, really complicated with the different rules in different states where some people have rights in some states and not in others. And I think when it comes to civil rights, it's a federal issue. And I think that this is a civil rights issue. So yeah. I think that that's fair. And now yeah. for some tasteless Britney hashtags. <laughs> so hashtag baby, no more times. Hashtag. Oops, it won't happen again. Hashtag toxic conservativeship. Hashtag she's not lucky. She's a star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the most important hashtag in all this is hashtag free Britney, right? Like there is that good, important social movement getting her out of that conservatorship and supporting her and her rights, which she absolutely deserves. Even even if I'm not a fan of Britney Spears music. Yeah. I am a fan of human beings having rights. So right. 
And yeah, and that's exactly where we find ourselves is like, even, even though I would not advocate for people listening to Nickelback, I would not advocate that they have all the rights taken away. Just their, just their instruments. Uh, it's still a stretch. I don't know. No, that's true. That's true. They can, they, they, can, they, can, they can play their instruments. I was totally kidding. That's fine. No, no, no. I was saying they should be isolated. They should go away. They need more. <laughs> no, Nickelback needs a more restrictive environment. They're, that's, they're not humans. They're uh, the equivalent of a sonic STI. <laughs> <laughs> actively spreading disease and harm wherever they go yeah 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 okay it's the worst <laughs> anyway i think that one of the issues here is that and again without having the information of what what was going on behind closed doors and specific private medical information about britney and honestly a lot of other people who are in the system what it seems like was going on with at least in britney's case is it seems like she wasn't really given a choice she wasn't really informed of the situation and it's just sort of things were taken away from her as i understand it her dad, Jamie, was leveraging using her kids to get her to do things like, you know, she could say, I'm not going to do this. And he couldn't necessarily force her to do something she didn't want to. But then he would say, like, you won't get to see your kids for a month, you know, if you don't play this concert or go to this event or do X, Y, Z, right. whatever. And so I think there is a lot of coercion and a lot of a lack of respect for autonomy for her ability to make any kind of choices for herself that definitely were way above and beyond what should be a part of a normal conservatorship. That's really the thing. And a point that I think is really important to make in all this is that in, in all of the stuff that's come public, Brittany is not asking for no conservatorship. She's just asking for her dad not to be the conservator. Well, and we, we don't, we don't know. She, she might, yeah, she might be asking true. for no, it's just not clear, but it definitely seems like her problem was mostly with her dad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In the large discussion, I think one of the things that we have to ask, and this is kind of going to bring us to our take home points is that do people who think they know what's best for somebody else have the right to throw somebody else's life away or a right to risk, or do people in general have a right to, to do that? Right? Like, do I have a right to mess my life up by not making money by Engaging in problematic social interactions. Do I have a right to do that? It's like it's very much so that Bannerman article which talks about like what's my right to eat donuts and and nap all day. Yeah. Right. Like I have a right. There are natural consequences that come along with that, but I do have a right to do that if I want to. And that's that's nice that nobody has to make that decision for me. Yeah. And I think there there is a larger discussion, I think, to have about when you exercise certain amounts of those rights, that extends to forcing others to then have they then have an obligation to you. So for instance, like, do I have a right? So like I maybe have a primary care physician and that doctor has agreed to more or less look after my well-being. Do I have a right to against their recommendations, make their life as difficult as possible by doing as little as possible for my own health and matter of fact, making my health worse while they're obligated to look after my well-being. Now they have a right to say, I'm done being your doctor to an extent, they actually don't have a full right to do that necessarily, depending on the circumstance right. that they're in. And so I think there's always being mindful of the fact that just because we want to argue that people do have the right to do anything they want, all of the things that we do when we choose to live in a society affect a lot of other people, even those personal decisions. So we just need to be careful, I think, to be mindful either way. And I'm not saying that you're wrong. I completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah. People do have a right to throw their life away. They have a right to risk things and to do stupid stuff. And with that comes a cost. And the cost is not just to them. The cost is to other people. And so I think that we have to understand that there is maybe a consideration here about what kind of rights we waive to have access to other rights. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Like I could say I, I waive my right to have a doctor take care of me 
if I also am exercising my right to do something that puts my doctor in a difficult position of having to make a choice about my life or death. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's fair. I think it's totally fair. Okay, cool. Definitely not where I thought this whole conversation needed, <laughs> needed to or was going to go, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot and we're going to get into this when we start talking about vaccine hesitancy, uh, which is an upcoming topic, but it's like the, the whole idea of like freedom and rights it's just not this simple one-sided issue that it gets treated as. It's so, so, so much more complicated than that. Yeah. And with, with many considerations. And I think it's worth breaking those down and digging into what they are. So No, absolutely. Anyway, we don't take on points. So <laughs> we should make, yeah. I should treat this that way. Yeah. If you're an adult with dependents, many assets, or basically concerned about you know, who would be looking after your belongings, finances, and physical well-being in the event that you're unable to, do yourself a favor and sign a power of attorney or establish a trust of some sort. Maybe your spouse, maybe your spouse sucks. <laughs> you know, it happens. <laughs> maybe pick your dog or your cat, but you know, not that, but you know, pre presumably someone who's actually going to be that you trust to be in your court. And so if you can do that, this is sort of like having a will. I think everyone, and I'm, you know, I'm being hypocrite because I don't have a will right now, but a will is such a good idea because you never know what's going to happen. And in the event of, of your untimely demise, you want, I would think, the people who love you and care about you and who are around you to be as well prepared to deal with the fallout of that as possible without being caught blindsided. And so I think that the power of attorney is, is, is one take home point as a recommendation here. Another concern that we're seeing in this, too, is the, the permanency of any arrangement that, yeah. that's made. OK, so, you know, we've mentioned before that we work in behavior analysis and within behavior analysis, we're not going to put a treatment in place and then never review it again. No, like God. that would be awful. Right. Or at least like critically evaluate it. We do that near daily if we're working in that space. Yeah. You know, so as we kind of look at this, like, you know. It seems all too often that this happens where it, a conservatorship is put in place and it's not critically evaluated in a way that is meaningful or helpful for that person. So while it legally requires a regular review, the extent to which that occurs seems pretty bleak and fairly unreliable. And so many advocacy groups and legal teams around the country are beginning to stand up for the civil rights of conservatives to reevaluate necessity and determine if it's truly the least restrictive option, including more thorough annual and biannual reviews yeah absolutely now a lot of pieces of conservatorship law involve steps that are supposed to happen but unfortunately they don't always happen and while britney's situation has brought this discussion much more to the public eye like i don't think i really heard of conservatorships until this started getting talked about in a more accessible way yeah countless individuals are being abused stolen from exploited neglected physically abused behind the scenes that sort of thing like there is too much room right now for bad things to happen yeah and i think again i always want to point out and i've said this so many times already in this episode i think conservatorship is ultimately probably a good thing i think that this can protect people when they need protecting but i think what has happened is it has been overextended and exploited to the point where it has caused harm and ultimately I think that I'm finding more and more my goal in life is to both cause as little harm as possible, as well as push and enforce and suggest policies that result in as little harm as possible. Yeah, absolutely. That value requires 
a constant reevaluation, right? Absolutely. Like, what am I doing? What am I working on? And whatever that situation is. And we can apply that to literally any situation where there's a conservator involved, right? Yeah. So it, whether it's residential placement, whether it's conservatorship, or whether it's prison or literally anything, like any restrictive environment should be reconsidered over and over and over again. These restrictive situations, these restrictive contexts shouldn't be permanent without regular review. And the people in the circumstances change. And as practitioners, as people who work in human services, we are sensitive to those variables that contribute to those types of contexts and those behaviors and how those evolve. And if more people were more sensitive to that stuff, we would see probably a lot less restrictive policies, a lot less restrictive laws, a lot less restrictive situations for the folks that need to be protected. Hashtag free Britney. Hashtag free Britney. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, this is a long one and I feel like it was, it was a good one. I appreciate it. And so I think we touched on this, the relevant portions of this uh, as, as much as, as we needed to for this. So I'm, I'm good to wrap it up there if you are. Yeah, I think that's fine. That makes sense. Perfect. Let's get some recommendations. Recommendations. Okay, I am recommending a movie, The Wrong Turn, from 2021. So there is a whole franchise of wrong turn movies. These are slasher horror movies, mm-hmm. maybe vaguely like, I don't know, an exploitation of some sort. The original ones, there was a lot of, I don't know, did you ever see The Hills Have Eyes? Yes. There was some overlap with that. There was like mutant monster people, largely through, I think, inbreeding in this particular setup. But anyway, they sort of revisioned, rebooted this franchise in, in the 2021 film wrong turn. And this is far and away my favorite version of the wrong turn. Okay. I, the idea of the wrong turn. I didn't even know they redid it. Yeah, it it was super well done. They went in a completely different direction with the antagonists, um, made them a lot more complex, a lot less just black and white, evil, weird, creepy things. And a lot more, like, oh, maybe maybe I'm rooting for, maybe I don't understand the context here as well as I thought I did. Right. And also just like a really, really fun ending, which gotta recommend you watch as the, like the credits, credits are start rolling over like something that's happening in the shot. And it seems like that's just the end of the shot. It's not, you gotta watch through it Okay. at least until like the, the moving characters are off screen and then, and then you can stop. But um, anyway, okay. uh, so the wrong turn film, a lot of fun. It is a horror movie. So if that's not your bag, don't, don't worry about it. But right now I know it's available on showtime. And then of course, wherever you want to rent movies, I guess. I like that. I, I'm a big fan of horror movies, but like wrong turn and Hills have eyes are, were always those movies that are like, territorial mutants get revenge is what it is. Like that's essentially what it is. Like get out of my space, get out of here. You don't belong here. And that's, that's really like kind of always how I understood it. So I'm glad they redid it a little bit and kind of like gave it more nuance. Yeah. They really reworked this in a different direction in a way that I, I found I really enjoyed this is, this is, this is my favorite one. So I really, I thought it was nice. My recommendation is not a horror movie. It is called Bill and Ted face the music. So I (laughs) love I remember when I was a kid, loved Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Like I had watched Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and, and really enjoyed it. But I remember really like appreciating Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Yeah. And when you think about the premise of these movies, they're so bizarre. It's time travel. It's spiritual. It's, it's essentially like just a really great, like high end stoner movie. Like that's yes, really what they that's are. That's such a good way to put it. Like a high concept is really what it is. Like, it's like, and you know, like the first movie, the first two movies have George Carlin. They've got like 
all kinds of stuff going on. But the, the this one is it came out in 2020. It was a, a late surprise. And it was something that like you'd heard that they were working on and it was like, wasn't sure how it was going to go. And it was really just a fantastic way to end the trilogy. Like, so if you're not familiar with the story, like there's the, you know, Bill and Ted are supposed to write the music that unites the world. And they struggle to do that. Sure. And this one is like, they've gone into middle age, they've had kids and they still haven't written the song that unites the world. Okay. And, and so it's like, their exploration through all of that. But what I really loved about it is they did all the, like just enough fan service that it wasn't like hitting it on the nose and like making it like so absurd. Like they got their kids involved, like kind of like with a story arc from the first movie, they go to hell. Like the second movie, there's like this really like the protagonists and the antagonists are themselves. Like they're, they're their own worst enemy in it. Like they're the villains in it. So it's really they do a really good job of like having multiple storylines happening at the same time and all wrapping up really nicely. So it's a perfect way to end that trilogy if you're into that. So I recommend seeing it. It was definitely worth a watch. That's awesome. I I really want to watch it. I I think I was looking up because I couldn't remember when the first one came out and it came out (laughs) Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So this is, as you said, wrapping up what you could now consider a, a trilogy, although I don't know that was the original intention. Yeah. I do think they had originally planned to do a sequel following the second movie, but this is it. Yeah. <laughs> the first movie came out so long ago that people who were not born when the first people came out originally uh-huh. could be 30 years old today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's how long they ago the first careers. movie came out. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> A lot happened between when the original was released, the second one was released, and then the third one was released. Yeah. I remember the first two being really, really fun movies and enjoying those. So yeah. Yeah. This one's really great. I mean, they do it like they, like I said, they pay homage to like, like there's little like nuggets in it that they pay homage to the other movies. And it's like just enough that you feel good about it, but it still feels like a fresh storyline. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And then sort of going with that is like, I feel like there could definitely be people who watch this and don't get any of that. Cause they're like, Oh, I never saw the original movies. Cause those are three decades old. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. It's, it's worth it though. It's, it's a fun, it's a fun watch. So I was really pleasantly surprised by it. I'm excited. So we got to recommend some movies today, which is always fun. I think yeah. those are the recommends that people are a little more easy to easy to be able to follow than things like, you know, go explore something. Yeah. Or nectarines. Yeah. Ne- yeah. Uh, <laughs> which I think I like those recommendations, but I also like these is like, you know, check out this movie we like. So yeah, it's good stuff. All right. I think that wraps it up there. I would like to say thank you to Alan for his awesome notes. Thank you, Shane, for recording with me today. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you to our Patreon people, which includes Amanda, Justine, Layla, Megan, Mike, M, Mike, T, and Shauna. Thank you all so much for supporting us. Also, thank you to Justin for all of his awesome audio work that he does. Thank you, Amber, for her work on social media, Kyle and Selena for their help on the team. And if you are a conservator, a conservatorship, or like to recommend a movie that we should watch, probably, I guess we just recommended two new movies. So a newish movie that we should watch, then please reach out to us. You can contact us on all the social media platforms. You can email us directly at info at www.wwdpodcast.com, where you can tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you think. We can just say hi and we're cool with that too. Yeah. You can also leave us a rating and review. As I said, as the YouTubers say, smash that subscribe button. Uh, it feels so gross. I'm not going to say that anymore. That's just horrible. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> but otherwise, definitely subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And I think that's all I have. Anything else? Nope, that's it. All right. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. 
Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.